You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Morning. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Welcome. Hey, moms, we love you and appreciate you so much, and we love you and appreciate you so much that we have a little gift for you on your way out. So if you're here with your parents the very end of the service, you might want to run out there and grab what's just outside those doors and bring one of those to your mom, okay? Just a heads up. And if you didn't get that, mom, there's roses outside the door for you after service. We love you and appreciate you. So today we are in uh, Psalm chapter 80. We are going through a study in the book of songs entitled Songs of the Messiah, where we are looking for Jesus in each one of these songs that we go through. And uh, we come to a psalm today that is not written by David. It's not written by Solomon. It's written by one of Israel's worship leaders. Uh, in the temple, Israel would have wor- different worship leaders, and one of these worship leaders' names is Asaph. And so he is the author of this psalm, and uh, this psalm is placed in the third book of the psalms. You remember, Psalms has five books in it, total book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. They cover uh, the, the whole entire story of Israel, basically, starting with David and Solomon. But here in book three, okay, where this song is placed is in the portion of the, uh, the song, the psalms, that are anticipating exile, which is not a good thing. Anticipating uh, Israel being sieged and exported, deported out of their land to be captives in Babylon. That's what the tone of this uh, song is. It matches the weather, the dreary weather of this day. And so today we're talking about suffering. And this is one of the reasons why Psalms, the, book, the whole book of Psalms, all 150 chapters, is so popular, even outside of, of, of church and Christian circles. Why people love the book of Psalms is because of this. It is so relatable. What, the, the words on these pages, they resonate with us deeply. They're so raw and honest. And so we come to a song today by Asaph where he's being raw and honest about the suffering that he and Israel are enduring in this time. So as we look through the psalm, we're going to get an incredibly accurate depiction of suffering, an incredibly accurate depiction of our typical response to it, and a really incredible depiction of God's response to our suffering. And we're going to do that in three points. So here, here's where we're going to go today. Here's the, the trajectory. We're going to talk about first the nature of suffering. What makes suffering suffering? What makes our circumstances actually suffering? The nature of suffering the resistance in our suffering, basically our response to suffering, and then God's grace in our suffering, all right? So before we go ahead and jump into that, let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask the Lord to teach us and be with us. Father, we thank you that you do work out all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We do praise you that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who's been tempted and tried as we are and yet without sin. And because of him, because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace, your very throne. We can approach with confidence the throne of grace and find grace and mercy in our time of need. We thank you for our great high priest, our advocate, who stands at your right hand and is our innocence. He is our righteousness. And every time we struggle, when we are weak, when we are guilty, when we sin, when we fail, we look to him. And he is our confidence, and he is our life, and he is our identity. God, I pray that you would direct our eyes to your son today, even in our suffering. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So let's first talk about the nature of suffering. What makes your circumstance, your situation, actually 
suffering. And what happens is the few different things, the different, two different variables collide and hit one another, and it's what makes our situation suffering. So here's the first one. Here's what makes suffering suffering. We know who God is. We know who God is. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here's what Asaph says. He says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. There's two noteworthy things here in these, in just in these first two verses. Asaph here is recalling the power of God. He is uh, recollecting the memories, the stories of Israel that recall his power, God's capability and his ability. He talks here about God being a shepherd and leading the people of Israel. That imagery, that language comes from the Exodus, where God is a shepherd to the sheep of the people of Israel and leads them out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land. So we're talking about deliverance language here, okay? But also, do you notice that he talks about Joseph a lot here? He doesn't say lead Israel. He says you lead Joseph. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He, said, he talks about Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, Benjamin, Joseph's brother. This emphasis is on Joseph. So what's, what's Asaph doing here by by recollecting those memories, what he's doing here is he is, he is recalling God's power displayed in rescuing Israel through Joseph. You remember Joseph was second in command of all of Egypt. God pointed him there, placed him there, so when the famine over the land arrived, Israel would be saved, his whole family would be saved. So he's, he's looking back on all these things that God has done for his people all these kinds of deliverances that God has performed throughout their history. So who is God? Who is God? He is reliable. Historically, he's powerful. He delivers. But also, Asaph writes this one little line. It's really important. He says, you are enthroned upon the cherubim. You're enthroned upon the cherubim. And here's what that's referring to. In the Holy of Holies, like the very innermost part of the temple, where only the high priest could enter once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel, there in the Holy of Holies was where God dwelt. That's where his presence was with his people. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the sacrifices would be made, the blood would be spilled for the, for the animals that were atone, you know, substituting for the, the sins of Israel. But on that Ark of the Covenant was a lid. Was, it's called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat were two cherubim that were forged there, placed there. And the understanding was, was that was God's footstool. He sits in the heavens, but his feet are down here with us. Heaven is connected to earth. And so in this one little line, you're enthroned upon the cherubim. What Asaph is recalling is that God is with us that he has pledged himself to us, that we are his people. He forgives us. He's covenanted to us. He loves us. That's what he's recalling. So who is God? God is powerful and God is loving, all powerful and all loving, and that is what makes suffering inexplicable. How could a God who is all powerful, all capable, all sovereign, who has showed up time and time again, been reliable, how could he let this happen? How could God, who's all-loving, who, who's pledged to us, who's with us in special relationship with us, how could he let this happen? So that's what makes suffering, our situation, suffering. We know who God is, and our situation doesn't seem to line up with that knowledge, does it? We keep on going, and these uh, feelings are intensified even more. Because second, we not only know who God is, we know what could be. We know what could be. Now look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. Asaph writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. What, what Asaph is conveying there, what he's describing there, is Israel's this vine that was taken out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. And it was planted, it, it, it rooted deeply, it thrived, it abounded, and it, it, was, it was life as it should be. And, and, and the interesting thing is, you think to yourself, why does the biblical authors, Asaph here and other places like Isaiah chapter 5, why do the biblical authors refer to Israel and refer to life in the promised land in this garden imagery, in this, uh, this flower imagery? What's that all about? Why is that? And here's why. Because life in the promised land, when it was humming, when everything was going right, when they were abiding by God's law and trusting him, life in the promised land was like life in Eden. It was like they were back in the garden. This is life as it could be, life as it was meant to be, life as it should be. Asaph is remembering the good old days, the good old days, how things ought to be. He says the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its branches to the sea, its roots to the rivers. Not only was Israel thriving and flourishing, but they were blessing other nations. Wow, look at what we had. Look at what could be. Look at what should be. And I love the Psalms. We, we love the Psalms because they, more than any other book of the Bible, invite us to have these things resonate with us. We are invited to, to share our experience, to have a, you know, a connection with these words here. The very same echo of Eden that Asaph is talking about here, life as it could be, life as it should be, that echo remains in each one of us. It does. All of us, for some reason, think about this, all of us, for some reason, can imagine life without suffering and pain and injustice and sadness, can't we? All of us, for some reason, can imagine life without loss and grief, right? Why, why is that? Why can we imagine being whole even though we're not? Why can we imagine perfection even though we're far from it? Why is that? Why is that? It's because we're all, each and every one of us, are made in the image and likeness of God. That is stamped within us. That is harnessed within us, which means we are built and made for relationship with the transcendent and the divine. We are built and made to do meaningful things in our life. That's, that is deep within us, stirring deep within us. So that's why we can imagine what it's like to have wholeness in a relationship and, and perfection and flourishing in life. That's why we can imagine it, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. Another way to say it is our imagination is haunted by a sense of what could be and even what should be. C.S. Lewis calls it the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. So then suffering, the pain of suffering, is intensified all the more, not just by who we know God to be, but what in our hearts we know what ought to be, and we know what can be, even though that's not what's taking place. And so there's this radical disconnect. Now let me go ahead and sidestep here for a second. And address anyone here who is you know, curious about Christianity, uh, seeking, but you don't believe in God. You're, you're not there. You think maybe all that exists. All that can be explained is just the natural order. What we have, you know, science, like you trust in science to explain everything for you. If that's you and you're here, just so you know, you then, 
you can have no problem with suffering. You should not have any problem with suffering because if all that is is the natural order and the evolutionary prog- progress and process of things, if our world is governed by chaos and chance and the strong outlasting the weak, then suffering is just the universe weeding out bad genes. Suffering is just how the strong outlast the weak. But you know that's not how you feel about it. Right? You have a moral outrage when you see injustice, when you see poverty, when you see, uh, uh, when you see suffering around the globe and in your own community, in your own life. Why is there an outrage? Why is there this knee-jerk reaction that tells you that's not how it ought to be? It's because there's more than the natural order. There's God's order. And you remain in the image and likeness of God. We are made in the image of likeness of God so we can imagine what it would be like to be whole, what it could be, what it should be. And so we know who God is. We know what could be and what should be. And the third thing that happens is then we feel what? We feel, I use this word specifically, we feel great loss when we suffer. What's Asaph say? Look at verse 12. Uh, What was he going through? What's Israel going through? He says in verse 12, Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field field feed on it. What's he describing there? What What he's describing is Jerusalem was sieged by Babylon. The temple was damaged by Babylon. Its inhabitants were killed by Babylon. He is witnessing destruction unfolding before his very eyes, and enemies... Uh, neighbors, surrounding neighbors, they just come in through the walls. Now they're vulnerable, and now they're exposed, and they're just taking whatever they want. He continues and says, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the sun, and for the sun whom you've made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They have cut it down. This tree, this vine that once flourished and thrived is now being cut down to the root. Now think about what Asaph is losing here, okay? The temple's being damaged. The walls are coming down. Jerusalem's being sacked. Think about, think about what he's losing here, okay? The temple, the city of you know, Jerusalem, that was their identity, That's what made them who they were. We have the temple. This is God's presence with us. This is God's city on the globe. It was that that was their identity. That's what made them feel like they were something, that they were significant. Okay, so there's an identity portion of this that uh, they're losing. What else? There's obviously security. They're exposed. They're vulnerable. They're at risk. It's dangerous. They are under grave threat. And what else? Friends, family. Lost, gone, now. And so think about all of the loss that's occurring here just in these verses. Loss of a sense of self, loss of friends and family, loss of security. This is what suffering does to us. This is what suffering does to us. It makes us feel like we are disintegrating. It makes us feel like we're no longer who we used to be. That that sense of self that we used to have is eroding. That's what suffering does to us makes us feel great loss. And listen, I want you to get this. The pain that we feel in suffering, you know what's going to determine the intensity and the measure of that pain you feel? It's going to be that knowledge of God. It's going to be how 
deeply you can recollect what ought to be and what could be, right? What you know about God and what you know about how things ought to be, that is going to determine how much pain you feel when you experience suffering. That's going to determine how much loss you lose. But then fourth, lastly, okay, what makes our suffering suffering? What's the nature of suffering? We feel abandoned. We feel abandoned. Look at verse 1. Actually, don't look at me. I'm just going to tell you. He says what? Give ear. He says in verse 2, stir up your might and come and save us. He writes in verse 14, turn again, look down, have regard. Do you sense the helplessness there? The helplessness that Asaph and his people feel, that they are on their own. They have no other options. And then in three separate instances, I'm not going to read every single verse, I'll just read verse 3, but in verse 3 and verse 7 and in verse 19, Asaph writes, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine on us that we may be saved. What Asaph is crying out for there is God come near again. God, come and be with us again. God, be present in my suffering. Don't leave me alone. And we know that that's what he's asking for and crying out for because that verse, restore us, O God, let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. It's actually an allusion to a classic verse in Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, Aaron, Moses' brother, he's made the first high priest. You remember that? And he is charged to give this benediction this blessing over all of Israel, and it goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that blessing, well, we all know that. You've heard that before. It's a very famous benediction. That benediction is actually just a, a, a blessing that's taking its cues from something that's set up in the temple. Inside the very temple, in the inner part of the temple, there was the 12 loaves of bread, why 12 loaves? Why would there be 12 loaves of bread, each representing one of the tribes of Israel? So all of Israel. And at the other end of, uh, of the inner core of the temple, and the inner, inner part of the temple, there was the menorah, the six candles that were shining its light upon the bread. And what's that supposed to represent? What, so what, what, what's the visible reminder there? When we have God's presence, His blessing radiates on us. When we have God's presence, life is given to us. And that is what Asaph is asking for here. Give me, give us your nearness again. Give us your blessing again. We are without you. We are alone, helpless, and abandoned. We know who God is. We know what could be. We feel great loss, and we feel abandoned. That is what makes a situation transition to suffering. And all of us in here feel it to a different degree. All of us in here are going to suffer or are suffering in our own way. This is inescapable. So how do we respond to it? Typically, what is our response to suffering? Here's what we do. We resist it. We resist what God is doing in our suffering. If I'm going to put it more, 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 more uh, pointedly. Let's look at this. Uh, Asaph asks two questions here. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading. He, there's two questions that he asks. In verse 4, he asks, How long? How long will this keep on going? He says, O oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? The second question that Asaph asks is why? Why is this even happening? Look at verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so all who pass along pluck its fruit? 
Essentially, what Asaph is asking and what we ask in our suffering is, when will this end and why is this happening? When will this be over and what are you doing? What are you up to? Why are you doing this? What is the point? Now look, Asaph knows the answer to these questions. If you know your Old Testament, you know the answer to these questions, and they're not, it's not rocket science. So, so why, or sorry, how long is this going to happen for? How long will this keep going, God? For Asaph, underneath the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, he knows that this is going to happen as long as Israel, God's people, disobey the law. As long as they do not keep their covenantal stipulations with God that they are in relationship with. If you were to go to Deuteronomy 28, you'd see all these blessings that come from obedience and all these curses that come from disobedience. This is the curse. Asaph knows the answer to, these, to this question, how long? It's going to happen as long as they're in disobedience and opposition to God. Why is this happening? What's the answer for him? He knows the explanation. He knows the answer. Why is this happening? Because you, because you broke trust. Because you trusted yourself rather than trusting me. The blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28, this is what's happening. This is why. Now listen, for us, though, it's a different answer. For all of us here, we don't live under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. We're at a different time, a different era. So let's ask those, you know, we ask those questions to God when we're suffering. How long is this going to go for and why is this happening? Do you know the answer to the questions? They're very, they're basic. How long is this going to go for? How long is this suffering going to go for? You know what God's response is? However long it needs to take however long it needs to go on for you to come to Jesus, however long it needs to go on for uh, me to sanctify you and make you more like Jesus, that's that. how long, as long as it takes. Why is this happening, God? Same answer, to make you more like Jesus, to make you more like my son, to sanctify you, to bring you to me. That's why. That's why God appoints suffering for us. So there's an answer. Asaph's not asking these things because He's ignorant. So then why is he asking? Why do these questions emerge for him, and why do they emerge from our own hearts? Here's why. (laughs) Because we don't want to accept them. (laughs) Because we don't think it's a good reason. Because when we're suffering, we want relief in our timing and on our terms. That's why we still ask. That's why we resist. That's why we oppose. Look, just because we don't, just because we have answers doesn't mean we have relief. We question because we do not like to wait. We want instantaneous relief. We don't want to walk in the unknown. We want closure. We want to all figure it out now. Look, just because we have answers to bring you to Jesus to make you more like Jesus. That's why these things are happening. Just because we have those answers does not mean we agree with them or think they're valid or think they're worthwhile. We question because even though we have those answers, they clash with us, with our priorities, with our vision of what we think the good life is. Like Asaph, we want relief in our timing and on our terms. We don't want to walk in trust. We don't want to live in the mystery We don't want to be okay with just resigning ourselves to an indefinite amount of time of painful sanctification. And that's what Asaph voices. Look at verse 14. He says, Turn again, O God of hosts. 
Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for who? This vine, Israel. Pay attention to us. Where are you at? The stalk that your right hand planted and for the son who you've made strong for yourself. They burned it with fire. They cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. God, end this now. Judge our enemies. Make this right. Relief in our terms and in our timing. That's his timing. Let's see his terms though, actually. He says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man who you've made strong for yourself. How does Asaph see this immediate relief occurring? How is it going to be brought about? It's going to be brought about through the king. A new king. A king is going to rise and he's going to lead us into a new age of triumph and this will all be lifted. All the sadness will come undone. The suffering will end just how we thought it would in our timing. Well, here's the reality. This, this siege of Jerusalem and the, and the damaging of the temple, it's happening in 603 B.C. It, happen, it happens again in 597 B.C. So there's six years there where it happens at the beginning of the six years and the six years. And then 13 years later in 586 B.C., all of Jerusalem is laid, laid to waste. The temple is completely destroyed. What Asaph is wanting, he doesn't get. The relief he wants in his timing doesn't occur. The relief he wants on his terms, it doesn't happen. God doesn't do it. We're left to live in the tension of what God is up to in our suffering, his purposes in our suffering, but we have no certainty or control of how or when it will conclude. Now, we want relief on our timing and on our terms. We want to end, and what's so bad about that? I mean, what... What's, why won't God comply? What's so bad about what Asaph is asking for here, right? These, these people who siege Jerusalem, it's wrong. God judged them. That's not wrong, right? It's not wrong to, to want suffering to end and to no longer... So why won't God do it? Why won't God operate on our timing and on our terms? Here's why. Because if God did, listen here, if God did what you wanted... It would only be a band-aid. Because that kind of relief that you're, you and I are looking for, that Asaph is looking for, it's only situational. There's going to be another neighboring kingdom that's going to attack again. There's going to be another empire that rises again. You might have relief now, but there's always next week. You might have relief next week, but there's always next year. Suffering, it is inevitable. It is an absolute that you can bank on because I am a sinner, and you are a sinner. We have fallen short of God's glory, and we live in a broken and fragmented world. Suffering is inescapable. We need something more than an escape from suffering. We need something that's going to help us endure suffering. We're not going to get out of it. It would have been situational if God would have complied for him, for us. And here, and here is... Um, what is so dangerous about getting what you want, about getting what you want on your timing and on your terms. If God were to comply, if he were to give us what we want, he would enable, he would allow to persist whatever idolatry and whatever strongholds and whatever self-trust and self-righteousness is operating in our hearts deep, deep, deep down. 
And that stuff there, that's what God's trying to weed out. That stuff, that's what he's trying to destroy so that we can be set free, so that we're not consumed by it, so that we're not defeated by it, and so that we can stop hurting other people because of our deep and hidden idols. If God were to give you what you want in your timing on your terms, he would be enabling you, enabling you towards destruction and destruction for other people. That's why God will not comply. That's why he won't do it. He has something better in store than what you're imagining. He knows something that you don't know. And so God gives us the power then, not to escape suffering, but to endure suffering, but to endure it. God gives us grace in our suffering to put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And so what is this grace? What is this power that God gives us? I want to put it simply. I don't want to make this complicated. Here's what it is. Here is the grace God gives us in our suffering. It's the cross. He gives us the cross of Jesus in our suffering to help us endure. Asaph, in in, in verse... 17, you remember, he talks about a king. He wants a king who's going to end this suffering and bring about relief. He is the man of God's right hand. He is the son of man made strong for himself. That's Jesus, the very prince of heaven, the very one at the right hand of God the Father. In verse 14, he asks for God to look down from heaven and give regard to this vine. Jesus left heaven. He left heaven and became the vine. Remember John 15? I am the vine and you are the branches. What do you think Jesus is trying to say there? (laughs) That he is the vine. But what happens to the vine in Psalm 80? What happens to the vine? It's cut down. It's burned. (laughs) It's, It's laid waste. It's crushed. Asaph is speaking better than he knows. Asaph here is writing things, but they suggest something beyond what he can imagine, I think. Because here's what, here's what this means. <laughs> the king he hoped for who'd bring about his relief, through Jesus, we see that that king enters into our human experience and takes on the effects of suffering, the experiences of suffering to help us endure it so that we have an ally so that we have a friend, so so that we have an elder brother who walks with us every single step of the way in our suffering. And because Jesus does that, because he is the king who enters into suffering and Psalm 80, because of that, you know what he offers us? I hope this is comforting to you. He offers you and I, listen, real solidarity and real relief. Real solidarity. Not just pat answers, not just cheap cliches. When you're suffering and a friend walks with you, the friend who actually gives you hope and not just pat answers, who is that friend, that kind of person? Who are they? It's the person who's been through what you've gone through. But even maybe to a deeper degree and to a more more painful degree than you have. So when they tell you, it's going to be okay. God is faithful. It's going to be okay. You believe them because they made it. Because God brought them through. That real solidarity, not cliche stuff, but real solidarity, that causes you to keep going through your suffering. Now listen to this. (laughs) Remember I said before that the pain 
of our suffering is going to be determined by how much we know about God and how much we can imagine perfection would be. That means that any pain you go through, and this is not to minimize you, your, our pain, okay? But any suffering we go through, it will never come close to the degree of suffering Jesus underwent because Jesus knew God perfectly, richly, intimately. Jesus was loved by God Richly, intimately. Jesus left the very perfection of heaven. The things we imagine that are written on our heart, Jesus lived there, dwelt there for all of eternity, past, present, future, right? He left that. And so when he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know we have a friend who has endured loss, grief, suffering, anything we can go through to a greater extent than we ever have. And so when he puts his arm around you, when he puts his arm around you and walks with you, it's not pat answers. It's not cheap. It's not cliche. It's real hope. It's real solidarity. He offers us real solidarity. He also offers us real relief. Real relief. Let me make a bold statement here. This is a bold statement. I think. But I invite you to challenge it in your own time. Not right now. <laughs> Bold statement. There is nothing, there is nothing that you are going through right now or ever have or ever will that the cross did not put Jesus through already. Like the, the event of the cross, his suffering, being beaten, dying on a cross, being buried, there is nothing that you're going through, ever will go through, that the cross did not put Jesus through already. So think about this. Think about this with me. Listen. The cross was designed, the Romans designed it to deter any thought of resistance by, by, by the Jewish people, by any of their uh, subordinates. Jesus, here's, and here's, here's why it works so well, because the cross is a public humiliation. It is. Jesus was publicly humiliated. He was paraded naked. He was stripped of his clothes. He was physically assaulted, beaten in a shameful way. He was made a public spectacle in the most shameful of ways in his time. Think about this. Jesus was abandoned by all his friends. Every single one of his closest friends fled. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this. The skies turned pitch black when Jesus hung on that cross. Jesus was totally helpless, totally powerless. On his own choice, he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He gave himself up. His strength was zapped. He was crushed by sadness, crushed by grief. That's what the cross is for Jesus. Now, why does any of that matter? Here's why. Jesus comes alongside those who have been humiliated, who have been shamed, who have been assaulted, and says, I know how you feel. Jesus comes alongside those who are lonely, absolutely lonely, and says, I know how you feel. Jesus comes alongside those who are depressed, who are sad, who just live in darkness, and says, I know how you feel. 
And then here's what he says. Listen to this. I don't, I want, this is the power to endure your suffering. Okay? This is where real, real relief comes. Not to escape suffering, but to endure it. Here's what Jesus says to you. He says, when I endured my mistreatment and when I died, I absorbed every bit of humiliation and shame and sadness and darkness that you would ever face. And then when I resurrected, I left those things in the grave. So now he's saying to you, if you unite yourself to me, you can transfer your suffering onto me. And every bit of humiliation, shame, sadness, and darkness can stay in the grave that I triumphed. And though you still might feel pain, and that's very real, it will never define you. That's not who you are. It does not have the final say over you. Your suffering never will. Because Jesus died, absorbed it, and left it in the grave when he walked away. And he says this to you. Because you unite to me, and here's the good news. Because you unite to me, not only have I taken the humiliation and shame and sadness and darkness, but I've transferred to you, given to you in its place, my innocence, my purity, my purity, my beauty, my righteousness, my wholeness. So when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he invites sinners and sufferers to come to him, what he is saying is, embrace this great exchange. My righteousness, my purity, my perfection and innocence for your rags, for your wounds, for your shame, for your darkness. Make the great exchange. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And now, those things will never define you. They might, you might endure them. Suffering will come. It will, it will end when Jesus returns, but until then, it, you will face it, but it will never get the last word, because Jesus has the last word. So we don't get relief in our timing. And we don't get relief on our terms. But here's what you do get. You get Jesus. You get Jesus. Walking with Jesus means that you will give more than you never wanted to. But you will get more than you can ever imagine. A walk with Jesus, to embark, to embark on a life with Jesus, that, friends, is one long act of trust. Trusting that he knows better. Trusting that he's up to something. Trusting that if he does not give you relief in your timing and in your terms, he's making you a masterpiece all the while. Trust that God is good and he knows what he is doing. He knows better than us. Let's pray. Father, we are here, and many of us do have wounds and hurts and regrets, and if we don't have them today, we may have them tomorrow. And we thank you, God, that you made our problem your problem. Look, you did not have to do that, Father. We turned our backs on you. We, we thought we knew better than you, and we, we were happily on our own apart from you. But you came on a rescue mission for each one of us that you might offer us forgiveness, 
take away our guilt, and then walk with us through our suffering forever and ever until we are with you in glory when there will be no more guilt, no more shame, no more temptation, no more failure, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more bad news, no more lost jobs, no more loneliness, no more depression. Oh God, we look forward to that day. And until that day comes, fill us with hope as you walk with us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.